Hello and welcome to Informed, a podcast series where you will hear industry experts share their thought-provoking insights and lessons in the field of medical communications. This series is brought to you by ISMAP and is generously sponsored by MedThing SciComm. My name is Rob Mathias and I'm president and CEO of ISMAP. On today's podcast, we're going to be discussing the opportunities and challenges to achieving open access. As the principles of open science become more widely adopted by the medical research community, open access publishing is an increasingly debated topic. This debate has highlighted a lack of common understanding of what open access means, how it works, and why it's important for different stakeholders. Today, we're going to have Kristen Rattan, who's going to help us to describe open access. She's the founder of Strategies for Open Science. She has a 20-year history working to accelerate advances in science and research communication. Kristen is on the board of the American Institute of Physics Publishing, the Code for Science and Society, and ASAP Bio. Kristen, thank you so much for joining us today and, and to chat with us about open science. The first question I have for you is, is just an open-ended question about open science. And if you could tell us a little bit about what makes it so important, like why in today's age is, is open science uh, so important to, to people? Rob, thanks for having me. And it's a great question. You know, I think that we are starting to see a real rise in interest in open science and a lot more questions about why that's important. I think the key is that the world is facing so many crucial issues today. Climate change, we're in the middle of a pandemic, we've had persistent problems like world hunger, and then now in the U.S. we're facing up to centuries of systemic injustice. And research about all of these issues has been ongoing and is available, but is often locked behind walls. And some of those walls are paywalls that are intentional, and some of them are just institutional walls that are there for legacy reasons. Open science kind of breaks out that knowledge, relevant data, and key information for others to be able to use it and reuse it. Interesting. So, I mean, you you obviously have a passion, right? And you founded Stratos, and, and you're working in the area. What drove your passion in this? Why is it so important to you? My first uh, encounter with what later became known as open access it happened in 1999, and I attended a keynote speech given by Pat Brown, who's a Stanford researcher, or was, and later founded the Public Library of Science. He was advocating for the freedom of information, and it just suddenly clicked. It felt so obvious. Why wouldn't all of this information, particularly things funded by the public, be available to the public? So that was where it started. So now, interesting, you used the word open access, and we were using open science. Some of our listeners may want to know, what's the difference? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, things really started with open access in the late 1990s. By the year 2000 or so, I think people were starting to use the phrase open access instead of things like freedom of information. Uh, And it became a movement. And it was based a lot, too, on the open source movement for software publishing. And that had really taken hold. And so open access was a logical phrase to begin to use. But people quickly realized that access to the final published record isn't really enough. What you need is access to the work ongoing as it's progressing. So open science is a more global term that refers to open data, opening up scientific protocols and methods, opening up all sorts of research materials to others. So we're talking transparency at this point. We're talking transparency in terms of the, the research that's been done, as well as the way the communication's happening. Is that, is that where you're heading? That's right. Exactly. It's not just about making something available to others. It's exposing how it was done 
as you just said. And I think that's a critical piece of it. And transparency is, is great for access. We want people to be able to access data sets and various other resources used, but we also want to understand how they were used and try to make the work more reproducible so that others can actually test it and validate it, which should increase the integrity of the research output. So I, I think great responses, and I think it's it's interesting conversation. Our listeners, their primary objective is, is really to uh, to think more about helping patients at the end of the day, making sure the patients have the best care they can have. Do you associate open science, open access, both with better patient care? Absolutely. I, I can't tell you how many times in my years of open access advocacy, I've talked to practitioners, doctors, nurses that don't have access to the literature, or their access is very spotty. And certainly this is true of the public, of which patients are a part of patient advocates, family members. So I think that open access improves that. Where it begins to be a question is, is the information available, such as raw data sets or only partially analyzed data sets, early findings, null results, are they more likely to create noise or distraction if they're shared too early or potentially even cause harm? And those are arguments people make against, for example, preprints and other open science efforts. I think that we underestimate the intelligence of our patients and our patient advocates and our certainly our physicians. And I think they can tell the difference between something that has gone through final levels of assessment and analysis versus something that's shared at an earlier state. So my inclination is to move as much towards open as possible and then help people understand and find the information that they need. This is great. I love the fact that we're talking a little bit now about the controversy that goes into it, because I think mentally it makes sense. Open science makes sense. It makes sense to think about being as transparent as possible. But where you're heading is an interesting discussion around should patients themselves even have access to some of the medical literature that's out there? Like, What are your, what are your thoughts on some of, of that type of thing? Well, I think we're seeing right now an incredible increase in the number of preprints that are being submitted particularly around COVID-19. And so it's an interesting use case because things are being submitted to, say, BioArchive and other preprint servers that are going to accelerate the rate of, of a vaccine or accelerate treatment outcomes. And this is wonderful. We have probably seen some proportion. In fact, I've heard from those who run MedArchive and BioArchive that they're seeing some proportion that are wrong, preprints that are demonstrably wrong. What I think is exciting about a preprint is instead of just a few peer reviewers looking at that and deciding whether it's publishable, you've got the entire research community looking at it. So within hours of posting that preprint, it is already being assessed by experts around the globe, and that assessment is immediately available. So I think it's actually speeding up the filtering out of information that shouldn't be remain in the published record rather than sharing too early in a way that could be dangerous to the public. Okay, so I, I work for, let's say, for example, I work for a, uh, a manufacturer and I'm developing a, a new uh, product, service, or technology to help patients. And I go out to a, um, a preprint server and I put my data out there for inspection and the researchers see it. Tell me about what you think happens, though, when, for example, a patient might come across that. Do they come across it? Do they, do they make their own assessments on the basis of that? Like, what do you think happens there? I think it, it probably will increasingly happen. Preprints are growing. It's a growing area of the published record. And it is this information is being indexed by Google and other search engines. So it's, it is immediately available to the public. 
I think it is important that the public be educated as to the difference between something that is being shared at a preprint stage versus something that's gone through peer review. But again, I also think we should things should be clearly marked and labeled and people can will, will understand that. I think it's important not to underestimate the intelligence of, of the patient groups in particular because they're, they have an active interest in, in the information, but in the public. People can tell the difference and understand the difference between something at one form stage of publication or assessment and something at a later form. And then finally, I would say we all know that peer review is highly imperfect and things make it through peer review all the time that turned out to be wrong. We've just waited 12 more months or something for that information to be published and then maybe however long after that for it to be retracted. So publishing at its, at its most traditional, has while it has ways to correct itself, it takes a very long time and it's an imperfect process. It's so interesting because you're really talking about ways that we can, we're really changing kind of the gold standard, if you will, of how we, we bring research and communicate it, right? Changing the way in which we bring science out and with the way we communicate that science. So I have a question for you. When I think about Stratos and, and kind of the, um, the aim that you have and, and your organization has to increase the speed of access to research, you talk about strategy and, and how to do that. Like, what do you mean when you say strategy? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a term that sort of is a catch-all. Uh, the work that I'm actually doing it falls across many different areas. The goal is to accelerate access to research, which helps other research build on work in progress. So rather than having this long kind of linear cycles of publication and then access to that information and then building on it, we can speed that up by having nonlinear parallel work where people are seeing early versions of somebody's findings and able to build on that immediately or begin to sort of spike off of that. Waiting for, you know, a year for an article to be published when we've been told we have 12 years to turn the tides on climate change doesn't make a lot of sense. What Stratos is doing specifically is a wide range of different things. I'm working with funders directly on policies to try to get more alignment there. I'm working with institutions on how to empower research institutions to communicate their own work more effectively and more rapidly. And then I also work with a number of infrastructure projects to try to get their you know, infrastructure projects that accelerate the, the rate of sharing of data, for example, and research, and trying to make an infrastructure tool chain that will help with the larger open science goals. Interesting. Let's uh, go back to our example before. I'm working for, uh, let's say, a, a biotech or a, um, you know, let's say a pharma organization, and they're developing a new product, service, or technology. And they bring you on and they say, help us with our strategy around open access, open research. What's one or two recommendations that you'll make in that scenario? Well, first, I, th I think that there's been historically, there has been a fear that opening things up too early will actually, you know, remove potential monetization options or tip the hand, so to speak, for others to scoop the work. My advice would be to embrace open and to begin to see how you can push to earlier and earlier sharing because the more people do that, the more the point of provenance becomes earlier. So for example, it used to be that people would fear a preprint because they felt they wouldn't get to publication. Somebody might steal the work or take credit for it or otherwise use it before they get to a final publication. Now preprints are becoming the point at which that provenance is established. So the earlier you do that, the earlier you're staking your claim and your reputation around the work. So my advice is to open, embrace open early, 
but just do it in a way that where you're, the objects and the information that you're sharing is attributed to you, has a persistent identifier attached to it, is fully discoverable and becomes a real first-class research object, if you will. So many of our listeners are going to hear this and say, well, are you telling me that if I publish preprints or I go open research, I can still publish in a reputable journal? Can I still get my New England Journal publication? What do you think about that? Yes. And actually, I would say probably 90% of the journals have agreed that having a preprint out there earlier does not preclude publication. This used to be the case. It used to be a problem and and publishers would, would reject anything that had what they called prior publication. But that has changed. And this is one of the many ways in which traditional publishers are evolving towards a more open kind of publishing life cycle, if you will. What are some of the barriers? We, uh, let's say we embrace this. We want to move to open, open research. We want to move to open access. What are some of the barriers that folks need to be aware of? And is there one or two things they can do to overcome them? I think one of the largest barriers is that we have built up economies around research. There are many avenues to monetize it, whether it's through commercial publishing or uh, big pharma. And it's challenging because these economic drivers can create a lot of innovation and add to the research landscape. But it also creates barriers to sharing because there's this sense of proprietary information that can be monetized and therefore needs to remain closed until somebody's willing to pay for it or until there's a product. I think that what we're finding is that research shared early can actually speed up industry and speed up product development And there are examples out there like the Structural Genomics Consortium in Canada, a run out of Canada. The Human Genome Project is a great example where a large-scale open project can actually drive a lot of of industry, a lot of creativity, and accelerate research. So I think, again, the idea is to flip the thinking away from a fear of open to how open can create opportunities. And then I think there's another much more practical barrier, which is that sort of global we, institutions, governments, funders, you know, research organizations have not really converged around workflows and tools that support open science in practice in the real world. So, for example, there are many different ways to share data, many repositories out there, but they're very inconsistent in how whether they use a persistent identifier like a DOI to make this thing an archived permanent part of the research record. So people may be sharing data in ways that actually doesn't comply with what you'd want for open science. I think that you've given our listeners quite a bit of perspective, and I certainly appreciate that. Our listeners are publication professionals, medical affairs professionals. If you had just one piece of advice, one piece of direct advice, what would you say to them around open access, open research? I would say, again, embrace open and look for new paths towards monetization, business models, product development, that depend on open because they're there. They exist now and they're emerging. And if your work is truly advancing science, people will pay for it. So having faith that your work will matter and that there will be a market for it, I think opens up the opportunity to really charge forward with open science. This is great. I'm hearing you loud and clear. What I hear you saying is to let go of the fear, embrace open at this point in time, to start as early as possible, make research available as early as, as possible, let the peer review process in its broadest sense take its own form, and to not not have a concern about that. And then as time goes on, the models themselves are changing, if I'm if I'm understanding correctly, and our our industry is switching to a place where 
at the end of the day, even the journals are going to change their business models so we can fully embrace what is a truly open research, open science place. So I appreciate your great comments. It's been a, a great discussion. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Informed for Medical Communication Professionals. Please take a moment to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. Inform your colleagues and rate our show highly if you liked what you heard today. We hope you'll also join us at an upcoming ISMAP University webinar or even consider becoming a member of our association. Just go to ismap.org, that's I-S-M-P-P.org to learn more. I'm Rob Mathias. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcasts. A special thank you to our producer, Leo Longbreak, and our audio engineer, Eric Coltnow.